One of the most surprising words that has come out of someone's mouth over the past, I would say, six or seven years has come from a man by the name Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. You know what he said? He said, the Holocaust is a lie. The Holocaust is a myth. It didn't happen. He said that the Holocaust is a great deception. Now, I realize that there probably were some political motivations for him to say those things, but even when questioned, even when pressed, he said, ah, the Jews just really, you know, just took advantage of a bad situation and just kind of elaborated on it for their own selfish purposes. And you listen to that kind of rhetoric, and you ask yourself, and I, I mean this truly, can he be so stupid? as to come to that kind of conclusion and to make those kinds of statements. It is ludicrous for him to say that the Holocaust didn't happen, it, it didn't exist, it isn't true. Hasn't he seen the pictures like you and I have? Doesn't he know anything of world history over the past 100 years? Doesn't he know that there are still people alive who have survived the death camps? Doesn't he know that Nazi war crimes have been, uh, war criminals, I should say, have been hunted down and that they have been found guilty of war crimes? Hasn't he seen the documentary footage and genocide and the death camps? Hasn't he read about Auschwitz and all the other places that were death camps around Europe? Now, honestly, when he said that, if you heard that, and you probably paid attention to the news, when those things came out, you probably thought to yourself, I, 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 what is he thinking? This doesn't make any sense. But get this, you can choose to ignore the evidence, but when you do, you will show yourself to be a fool. Because it's all there. It's all there to see. It's all there to gather and to understand, but he, because of his own purposes, chooses to deny its existence and its severity. Now, let me make my point a little differently here. Imagine you are a judge, <clears throat> and there is an accident that takes place after church today, right out here as someone is leaving the parking lot. And as a judge, you entertain the first witness, and the first witness comes up, and you say, after they've been sworn in, were you there, and did you see the accident? And that witness says, yes, I was there, I saw the accident happen, I saw the car coming down the road, I saw the other car come, and hit it from this side. And as a judge, you say, okay, you're dismissed. The next witness comes to the stand, and that witness is asked the same question. And that question is, you know, did you see what happened? Were you there? And that witness says, well, no, I wasn't there. I was 2,000 miles away in Chicago, but I heard about it. Oh, well, we want to hear more from you. Tell us what happened. Well, I heard that there was a car and there was a person and there was... Now, it, it seems kind of a silly illustration, but hear this. This is how our culture views the evidence of the Word of God. They would rather listen 
to people who are writing books 2,000 years later than listen to the eyewitness evidence that is recorded faithfully in the Word of God, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in the Gospels. And this is a theme of the book of John, is it not? Evidence. Evidence that will lead to belief or faith that ultimately believe, uh, leads to life. It's just it's madness how, how man would rather listen to someone today theorize about what happened during the time of Christ when they weren't even there, taking the information and twisting it around and creating their own little idea of what's going on, rather than simply taking the facts as they are laid out. This is not some little little story that John put together. So I'll just kind of throw some things together. You can believe, you know. No, he has a specific purpose in mind to give evidence that will lead to faith, that will lead to life. He has a goal in mind. He has a plan. He is accomplishing his purpose in fleshing out that plan. So this is certainly a belief, and you know that from uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. We don't want to turn there, but in there you'll find those three ideas, evidence, belief, and life. John states this is his goal. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, um, we were looking at the prologue, and it would be the middle section of that prologue that we called the witness, talking about John the Baptist and his role, kind of preparing uh, us for this book. And in that passage, we, we noted a threefold instruction for being a faithful witness. Let's just remind ourselves of what uh, what we looked at then. We saw, based on what John the Baptist was saying, he's saying, it's not about me, all right? I am not the light, is what he said. It's not about me. Secondly, it is about Christ. He came to proclaim about the light. He came to declare the light. So it's not about him. It is about Christ. And the third thing was that, as John did, we need to trust that Jesus actually is the solution for mankind. We need to believe that this this Jesus that we are proclaiming, that we are declaring, truly is the answer for man's problems, man's struggles, man's burdens. All right? Some will reject and some will receive. Okay? Some will reject and some will receive. Now, what's interesting as we come to today's text, part of the reason I had Rebecca and and reason I had all of us go through the, the rest of the verses in this chapter is because that that outline, those three points, really just kind of lay over our text here. And the the section we're going to be looking at today is this, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about John the Baptist. Next week when we we come together, he's going to be professing Christ. He's going to be doing it verbally. He's going to be proclaiming that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And then after that, we're going to see a bunch of disciples coming to him bunch of people responding to him. In fact, throughout the rest of the book, we'll see this, you know, receiving and rejecting kind of phenomenon taking place. So it's, it's interesting to me, and I think it's helpful to recognize the prologue is now kind of flushing out what's happening right here at the beginning. Now remember, credible evidence is the theme of this book, and that is where John's gospel begins. Look at verse 19. John says, John, the author of the gospel says, And this is the testimony of John. You may want to put in parentheses there, the Baptist. Okay? 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So the first evidence, the first fact is that John is bearing testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And from his testimony, we can learn some very basic principles of how we should witness. Some very foundational, very simple, basic principles about how we should witness. Let me give them to you right at the beginning here. Um, We should be humble, um, faithful, and honest. You'll see this fleshed out in this text. God wants us to be humble in our witness. He wants us to be faithful in our witness. And he wants us to be honest in our witness. Okay? Now let's just pause for a moment here to pray, if you would, please. Lord, help us today as we jump into this narrative section of John's Gospel. Lord, what a, what a joy and a blessing it is to be studying your word and allowing it, Lord, to, to, to move in our hearts. Lord, we want to know you. We want to apply Lord, your truth to our lives, and Lord, we want to learn how to faithfully proclaim it, uh, Lord, to those that do not know you. And I ask, Lord, that you give us strength and wisdom and a uh, a real filling today, Lord, of those realities in our lives. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, once again, to simply be your faithful spokesperson, Lord, to be your voice this morning, and that what I say would truly reflect the content and the message of your gospel. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Now, before we jump into the narrative, let's talk a little bit about John. John is uh, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, you may remember. They were old, barren. He got a message from Angel Gabriel. Hey, you're going to have a son, and you're going to call his name John. Um, John now, as we come to this passage, is he's an adult, but he's kind of a, a, a living a life of isolation in the wilderness, and we're told in other places that he, he basically lives on a diet of locusts and honey. Okay? John the Baptist diet program is probably not going to sell too much on the Internet, just so you know that. But that's what he survived on, locusts and honey. He probably looked like, get this, he probably looked like a cross between Grizzly Adams and that guy that lives under the overpass. Okay, Just kind of get that, that kind of picture, all right? He, he's, he's got, you know, he's very unkempt. He's got, you know, camel hair uh, kind of clothing. He just, you know, he's, I would consider him to have a lot of hair. There is a, a picture here that somewhat might look like, I think he looks too clean in this picture, honestly, all right? I, 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 I you know, so just kind of put that in your mind. Here is this guy from the wilderness. This is where he lives, and he is called to preach a message of repentance. Now, without getting into the whole story, John the Baptist goes to Herod, this is the ruler, and says, you married your brother's wife. You need to repent. Which, of course, you know, went over really, really well with the wife at that point in time. Okay? Um, he, when he was approached by the crowds, the crowds are saying, what should we do? And he says, brood of vipers, don't rely on the fact that Abraham is your father. In other words, don't rely on the fact that you are naturally um, Hebrew or Jews. You need to do something far more significant than that, which, of course, was a shock to the system of any Jew. Then he said to the tax collectors, this is what you need to do. Collect only what you are supposed to. 
Well, there's a novel idea. And then to the soldiers, stop exhorting, or extorting, I should say, money and giving false threats so you can get that money. You'll find that in Luke's account. And so let's just say this. In one sense, John the Baptist was not very popular because he was bold, he spoke the truth, he called for repentance, he called a spade a spade, he called sin, sin, he said it like it was, you know, he didn't have the latest cool outfit on, he didn't have certainly the latest hairdo, he was committed to what he was doing. But at the same time, people were coming to him in droves. People were listening to his message of repentance those who were Jews were coming, and they were getting baptized by him. Now, it's not a baptism of conversion that we would experience as Christians, but it was a baptism nonetheless in the Jewish economy of cleansing themselves before the Lord God. That's what he says is what took place as far as that baptism is concerned. In fact, um, turn your Bibles back to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. And the, the angel Gabriel really kind of fleshes out what John was called to do. Just, I think it's worth us taking some time to see this here. This baptism, baptism of repentance is really kind of explained in verses 16 and 17. So the angel Gabriel now is speaking to, um, to Zechariah's father. And, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So this, this, this baptism of repentance was really kind of a realigning, a restoration under the Judaistic economy. It wasn't coming to Jesus, but it was coming back to the Father of Israel, the God of Israel. Now, what's interesting here is that for a Jew who was born a Jew to be baptized was offensive because that was a practice that was only reserved for proselyte Jews. And proselyte Jews were those who were not naturally Jews but who converted into Judaism. And in order to do that, they would have to be baptized. Okay? And, you know, so we have some problems there. But there's a sense in which, though, um, we, we need to recognize that that John begins this narrative of his gospel at a time when John the Baptist is, get this, is the regional religious celebrity. He is. Thousands were coming to him to hear him in the wilderness and to be baptized and, you know, as a declaration of their desire to turn back to the Lord. He was a, su a successful prophet. His ministry was booming. Yet, the religious leaders, the priests, the Levites, and the Pharisees send a delegation to find out what is going on because, as I mentioned, for a Jew, this baptism is an offense to them. So let's pick it up then at verse 19 once again, and let's learn three qualities of a faithful witness. This is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? So what happens... When the news about thousands being baptized in the wilderness by some crazy grizzly Adam, Adam's wannabe, what happens? They send a news crew from Dateline Jerusalem to investigate. 
That's what's going on here, right? I mean, just read, right? They send a delegation, right? And this testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites to Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? I mean, they want to find out what's going on here, all right? So when they arrive, they see John, they pull him aside and ask him, who are you? And notice his response. He confessed that he did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. So he confessed. He did not deny, but confessed. This is language that is stressing a continuous, repetitive confession that is going on. Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Okay. If you're not the Christ, then who are you? Now, it's certainly they were expecting the Christ. They were looking for the Christ. That was who the Jews were waiting for. They were waiting for the Christ, and we're told in this passage that the Christ is who? Is the Messiah. All right? So they're waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, to come. The Jews were preparing for that. They, you know, they had established the synagogue. They had added... Uh, you know, more rules and regulations with initially, I think, good intentions, with those good intentions grew and distorted, but they were certainly anticipating the coming of a Messiah, ultimately because they were under the yoke of Rome, and they were wanting a deliverer to come and to remove them from being under that yoke of Rome. So certainly the Messiah uh, was one of the things that, that they were looking for. All right, John the Baptist says, though, I am not the Christ. Well, okay, if you're not the Christ, then are you Elijah? That certainly was a logical response, a logical conclusion. One of the reasons it was logical, because there was a lot about John the Baptist that was very similar to Elijah. Clothing, location, the boldness of his message, the way he would go up to a king and speak, all right? I mean, there's a lot of similarities, so certainly it was a logical thing to think through, and they did believe that the prophet Elijah would come on the scene before the coming of the Messiah. Now, you have to ask yourself the question, and maybe this is something we don't always think about. With his ministry being so successful, it may have been easy for him to say, I'm not the Messiah, but it may have been more difficult for him to say, I am not Elijah. I mean, look at all this. Look at all these people coming. Look at the success. Look at how they're coming. They're being baptized. They're they're being restored. But he says, no, I am not. I'm not. Now, guys, humility is a battle, is it not? I mean, you don't need to stand up and say, I'm choosing to be humble now. But humility is this battle that goes on in the heart. And there are things that fight against humility that those times when you wish and you want to be seen as as having done something or accomplished something or being important, and you're fighting against that to simply be humble. And here John the Baptist ultimately very likely is fighting against the glory of what he's experiencing right now and the possibility that he could say, you know what, yeah, there's things about me that are like Elijah. But he says, no, I am not. Then they ask, are you the prophet? And he says, well, no, I'm not. Now, there's a reason why they asked about the prophet. Moses in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So it certainly was logical that they would come up with that. But again, John's answer is 
No. Now get, get the, the flow of what's going on here. I am not the Christ. I am, I am not. And no. Now remember, when, when, when a writer's writing out an account, there are some significant things going on here. It goes from, I am not the Christ, I am not, no. I mean, like, hey, listen, you know, no, 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 no. It's not me. It's not about me. You've thrown out three great ideas, but I am none of those. And there certainly is this humility going on in John, especially when you take into consideration his following, his reputation, the fact that he had inside edition coming to interview him. He could not, and he would not give in to the temptation um, to, to move away from what he was called to do. And, and friends, just, just be careful. It is always possible for us to make that move because pride is something that raises, rises up in us very, very easily. Now, let me flesh that out, and, and I want you to think about it this way. Humility in witness means that we have an honest assessment of who we really are. Humility and witness means that we have an honest assessment of who we really are. The only reason that we are part of God's family is what? It's not because of anything that we have done. He sought us out. He brought us into his family. He breathed life into us. It's not about us. It's not about me. We have the answer, but we must never think that we are the answer. There's a, there's a, there's a subtlety there. Let me flesh it out this way, and uh, I, I hope this resonates, and I hope this is a warning to us. It is possible, it is possible for the church to be so full of itself that subtly over time, that in its thinking, it takes the place of Christ as being the Savior, the Satisfier, and the Messiah. In other words, it all started out well. Healthy ministry, gospel-centeredness, but then success comes home to roost. And the thinking changes from Christ to our church being the answer. All right? It becomes, come to XYZ Community Church, and we will meet your needs. We will satisfy your longings. We will help you deal with your problems. There is a promise of support groups, counseling, instruction, but it is now void of the gospel, void of biblical guidance, void of a biblical Christ, it is a warning to us that we can think too highly of ourselves as a church and in our own thinking replace ourselves with Christ. And friends, we must fight and fight and fight. That when people come to our church, they're not coming to our church saying, oh, did you go to the church? It's like, no, we are here because we want to exalt him. He is the answer. He is the solution. And friends, that's why it's so important. Just take one area. You know I'm passionate about it, but biblical counseling. What good is it if you go to a church that on, you know, from the pulpit they, they, they preach the word, but in the counseling session they're bringing Freud in? What's the point? Exalt Christ in the counseling room. Exalt Christ in the Sunday school room, in the small groups, in the home groups, from the pulpit. He is the answer. Now, if... If someone is attracted with the church because we are simply saying, listen, we're all backbiters and hypocrites trying to work together to glorify God, then that's okay. Because we recognize that it's only because of him that we can be anything. But 
the moment we start saying, you know, look at our church. Oh, man, we got it down. Let's market it. Let's write a book. Now, listen, not, there are churches out there that are doing a great job. Christ is central in their churches, and they're helping other churches by putting things together and, and marketing. I'm just saying there is this, there's this subtlety that we can fall into because of pride that we, we, we exchange Christ for the church. And we don't ever want to be there. Now turn to John chapter 6 and verse 41. John chapter 6 and verse 41. Jesus is speaking here. I just want you to notice here in John chapter 6, we really have the formal beginnings of a theme that goes throughout this book. It's actually a few verses before this, but verse 41 is the place that we're going to look. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. What does it say just before that? I am the bread of life. A few verses later, I am the bread of life. That is the beginning of a total of seven statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and life. I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. And then in in chapter 18, verse 6, he says, ultimately, I am he. Jesus himself is declaring himself to be God by that statement. Now, just think of that in light of John the Baptist. John says, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. No, I'm not the prophet. Jesus says, I am, I am, I am, I am. I thought about it this way. Jesus is the great I am. John is the great I am not. Uh Uh-huh. And we are the great who me? You've got to be kidding. All right? This, This is the role that we have to play. We are nothing even compared to John. I don't mean that in the sense of worthless. I mean we have we have no verses written about us specifically, do we? Open your Bible and find out a verse that has your name in it that is supposed to be for you, Joel, okay, and whoever else might be David or have a biblical name. You know what I'm talking about, right? But John the Baptist, he does. He knew he was not, or who he was not, and he understood that it wasn't about him. He was humble, get this, even though he was successful. Now, those are two very, very difficult words have together. Secondly, I want you to notice his faithfulness. Well, the Dateline crew were very confused, and they had to take some answer back to their leaders, so verse 22, we find this, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who send us. You know, give us, give us something we can bite into, Okay. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, friends, this is all prophecy fulfillment language, isn't it? John knew who he wasn't, but he also knew who he was. 
He knew why he was there. He knew what his role was. And he knew what his part in God's plan was. He was the voice crying out in the wilderness. Turn, or you think you have it in your hand out there, but you can look in your Bibles or look up on the screen. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 say this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a, a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John here is saying, I am here to prepare for the coming arrival of the king. In Isaiah's passage, that king is described as God. And in order for him to be prepared, everything must be in order. Every valley lifted up and mountain made low, every uh, uneven ground leveled and rough places are made plain. In other words, John is saying, my job is to be the voice proclaiming the coming of the king and everything must change for his coming to take place. He is coming. And if you believe John the Baptist, he's saying the person that's coming is God himself, the king. Now understand this. The only qualification I have to preach is that I have a voice. Certainly you can say, you're called to do that. It's your gifting. Yes, all right, fine. But it's because I have a voice. John came as a voice crying in the wilderness. We all have a voice, but listen, here's what's important. That voice is meaningless unless that voice has a message. Right? Not only that, but that message doesn't belong to John, that message doesn't belong to us in the sense of it didn't come from us, it comes from whom? From God. So John isn't called to come on the scene and proclaim his message as if John the Baptist has his own message about things to come. He is called to come on the scene and simply be a voice of God's message. All I can do, all you can do, is stand up, speak up, and proclaim his message. Everyone just look over here. We talk about our, our mission statement. It is our desire to be a community of believers who are faithfully committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's his message. It's his truth. It's not my truth. It's not my words. Did you hear what Rod said? Uh, you know, I may say a lot of things, but listen, don't be impressed with anything I say. Unless it's simply pointing you to the truth of what God says. Because it's what God says that is important. My voice is simply the vehicle. That's why the Puritans used to say, the role of the pastor is to be a mouthpiece for the text. And the role of a witness is simply to stand up and to proclaim the gospel, the good news. And friends, this is what God is calling us to do, to be faithful 
to be a voice crying in the wilderness of this world, if you want to say it that way. But crying out with a message, not any message, but his message, not our own message. Now, there's a danger today. On one extreme, we have a pope who claims by his position, and the church organization claims by his position, that he speaks for God. In fact, if he speaks something, guess what? It is equivalent to revealed truth. Do you know that? If he declares it, that's it. It's new revelation. It's added to the canon. So he certainly is taking on a responsibility that he has not been given by God. On the other extreme, we have pastors on the fringe of Protestantism that claim to be speaking for God. Pastors that say, God has given me a message that you must all listen to. No, God has given me a message. God has told me something that you need to hear. You know, God has spoken directly to me as opposed to, here's God's word. Here's God's truth. So these are extremes, and there's, there's places in, in between here. And friends, we, we must be careful here that we, 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 we are not deceived into following the authority of one man who believes that his message is the very voice of God. this. My role and function in this church is pastor-teacher. It is not ruler. It is not dictator. Anything I say when I'm preaching or teaching, you should study, you should be Bereans, and you should look it up for yourself. That's one of the good things about having home groups. When you're talking about the sermon on Sunday, you know, there may be something I said that's completely wrong, and that might pop up in the middle of home groups. You know, what do you do in that situation? Because I've wanted to do that many times, Pastor Rod. I just didn't know what to do. You know what? Talk to me. Communicate. We're here growing together. I am a frail man, and I will make this. Guarantee it. And we all work through this together. My word is not direct line from God. you understand that? Take the word of God. Study it, unpack it, present it, teach it, apply it, press it home. But it, it's God's message that is important here. And that leads us really to this, this next thing that's also very important for us to understand. We must take the gospel seriously and be faithful that we don't distort it to suit our own wisdom. Because it's, it's so easy for the church to come to the place where it's like, you know, this message is too hard for this person. They won't receive it. It just needs to be the love part. They'll like that, but the, the other part that talks about sin and stuff, they're, just, they're not going to receive it. They will not embrace Christ. Really? Well, yeah, they won't because they don't have the complete gospel. That's the reality. Or, or ah, I don't want to use the word sin. I, I want to use the word mistake instead. Then they'll listen. Now, guys... When we do things like that, what we're doing is we are distorting the message of the gospel. We're changing the message to suit our own wisdom and our own 
thinking that is skillful so this will relate to people. And I'm not saying you have to be obnoxious, you have to be rude, and you have to get in someone's face with a finger and say, you need to repent. Because all of us would be like, Aah! But what it means is that we simply proclaim the whole total picture of the gospel. Now, there's always a temptation because we fear rejection. I don't know if you're like me. I fear rejection. Anyone here feel the same way? You want to share the truth? Just like, oh, they may not like it. You know what? The best way to handle that is just to say, here's the gospel. Remember what we talked, we just went about earlier. It's not about you. It's all about him. He's the real solution to their problem. And if you present anything else, you've given them a placebo solution. And they might think that they're part of the body of Christ, and they're not, because it's been a watered-down gospel. So my challenge here, as we, as we look at this, is understand not only did John the Baptist come with humility, but he clearly went to the place where he knew what his role was to simply be a voice, and he was faithful to speak and proclaim the message that God had for him to pro- point out and to direct all the attention to Jesus Christ, who was the Lamb of God, who come to save the world, and we'll get to that next week in a couple of weeks. He's humble, he's faithful. Here's the last thing. I'm saying he's honest, and we need to be honest also. What does honest mean here? What does it look like? Well, let's read the passage. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, so there's, there's likely a new delegation, or it's the same delegation who is being talked about here. We're not exactly sure. But clearly what we have in this, in, in the next few questions here is the language of irritation, okay? So think of it in those terms. They asked him, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, then, then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, the Elijah, or the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one, who, one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. You know, the the, the irritation is, you know, we've come all this way. We've asked you who you are. You deny you're the Christ, Elijah, or the prophet. So why in the world are you baptizing? In other words, who gives you the authority to be baptizing Jews if you're not one of those three people? As I mentioned earlier, John's baptism was that of renewal to the God of Israel, not conversion to Christ. Notice, if you would please, chapter 1 and verse 10 again. If you have your Bibles, just look at verse 10. In that same witness passage, we're told there that he was in the world, talking about Jesus, he was this word, was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Okay? And, and John now is fleshing this out a little bit more for them. John answered, I baptize with water, but, but among you stands one you do not know. They were focused on the wrong person. John was simply the one preparing for the king, and their thoughts and their questions all had to do with John. But he's saying it's, it's Jesus, it's the creator who is among you. But they were blind to him. Now, Jesus is all around us, is he not? I mean, 
he, he, is, he was among them. In our, in our context, the Holy Spirit is active in and among us. But you don't necessarily see that unless you are given eyes to see that. The Creator has been and is present, but so many people in this context don't even want to have eyes to see him. He's within their grasp. But they're sidetracked by all sorts of excuses, some reason, some blindness that hinders them from seeing the light of the gospel. And friends, it's a sad reality. The Jews had prepared for the coming of the Messiah. They had built synagogues. They had priests. They had gathering. They had praying. But when he appears, they have allowed the good to cloudy their ability to see who was right before their very eyes. Now, friends, we live in a culture where people are blind to Christ. I mean, there are people that just, I mean, live in this, within 300 yards of us right now who are at home, who do nothing as far as go to church at all. And if they knew what was here, if they knew the answers that they could be given, not because we're such a great church, but because Jesus is the answer for them. But they're blind. They don't know. It's all around, but they don't know. The solution is there, but they don't know. <laughs> and when we gather, when we pray, when we're working through conflict, when there's uh, church discipline, people have no clue that if they simply walk into our church, they would meet him. They went to home groups or Bible studies or simply conversations maybe we had together. He is there. He's all around, but they're blind to it. They don't see it, and this is exactly what's going on. People certainly need to turn and listen. They need to turn and listen to what the voice is saying. Now, hear this. If they don't meet him today, they will certainly meet him in the last day. Not as Savior, but as a judge, right? You say, what does this have to do with honesty? <laughs> listen, you're, you're asking about the wrong person. Yeah, I baptize with water, but your, your focus and your attention is on the wrong person. Your focus and your efforts and your energy should be directed to the person who is among you. Just be honest with you. Stop focusing on me. The king is coming. The king is here. Now just some practical principles here that, that, that may be helpful for us, I think will be helpful for us, just as we... We tease out these, these last few verses here. There's three of them. The first one is this. John did not get caught up um, being defensive. You know, what is this, what is this, uh, this baptism? You know, why do you baptize? Yeah, I baptize with water, but boom, Christ. He's not being defensive. He's not trying to defend himself. Well, why? This is why I baptize, and here's this, and that, and the other, and you know, as soon as you get defensive, you stop talking about Christ. The second one is close to it, very, very close to it. John did not get caught up with uh, some controversial debate. Well, don't you know that baptism is for the proselytes, it's not for the Jews? Well, yeah, we could be for the proselytes. And all of a sudden, boom, you're off topic. Christ isn't central. Now, now hear this. I am one who naturally leans towards issues, all right? In conversation, you may have a coworker and you're wanting to share the gospel with them and they come to you and say, 
you know, what do you think about you know, homosexual marriage? Well, blah, 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 you know, you give all your Bible verses and boom, you know, in your mind you win the argument. Well, you know, Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners. He died for everyone. He died for me. He died for people in my church. And it's only through Jesus Christ that we can be certain that our sins are forgiven and through his death shed on that cross that we have life everlasting. See, it's so easy for us to get, to get sucked into the issue of the day and to then be diverted away from the gospel. And here we have John the Baptist. They're coming at him because like, we gotta know, we gotta have some answers here. Why are you, well, Jesus Christ is among you. Pay attention to him, not to me. Here's the last one. Um, he expressed his unworthiness. He expresses unworthiness, in particular to be associated with Christ. I am not worthy, he says. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, what is that all about? As a disciple, those who were disciples of John, and, typ and typically when the, a rabbi had disciples, those disciples acted as servants to that disciple or to that master. They would do that master's bidding. They would spend all that time with him. They would go here. They would go there. And there's some sense of that. Even Jesus with his, with his um, disciples would send them here and send them there and tell them to do this and tell them to do that. Certainly with John, that was the case too. It was a normal practice, but there was one thing that a disciple would never do because it was only reserved for a slave, and that was to untie or to tie the strap of a sandal of the master. So what does John say? I'm not even worthy to do but I'm pointing to him. So this goes back to the humility again. It's not about me. Remember I was telling you, you know, when I was in college, we would have to fill out every week, you know, how many people, you know, you shared the gospel with, how many people, you know, you converted, how many people, you know, you led to Christ, how many people you got to pray the prayer of, you know, I'm emphasizing here, you, 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 you. It's very easy, it's very subtle to think of this in terms of what I am doing as opposed to simply saying, God, I, I want to be humble before you. It's not about me. It's not about how great my church is because we have the only answers and we're really this. It's not about that. It's, it is about humility. It is about faithfulness to proclaim the gospel and the whole gospel. And it is about being honest. You know, someone, you're, you're talking with someone and they're, they're wanting to get on the issues. And the, listen, it's not about those issues. Those issues are not the issue. <laughs> There's one issue, and it's the gospel. It's Christ. And so it's drawing everything back to that, drawing everything back to that, drawing everything back to that because society that's struggling and shaking their fists with God is, is struggling and shaking their fists with the issues. But it's the gospel that is the answer for them. And so in our witness, we want to be doing that. Now, I've said all that. I just want to be honest with you. Um, I don't consider myself to be a good witness. <laughs> 
and I want to do better at that. I mean, as I, as I go through a passage like this, and I'm like, okay, Lord, you have us going through John's gospel for a reason. <laughs> you have me going through John's gospel for a reason because I want to do better, not in the sense of, God, I want to please you and you know, measure myself. I just, as a servant of God, I want to be more faithful in my witness. But that means that we have to be what? Witnessing. That means we have to be a voice. And many times we're just afraid to even open our mouths and to talk and to say anything and even engage in some of those conversations. But I want to challenge you. Gateway Bible Church needs to grow because we are opening our mouths, yes, here on Sunday morning, yes, in our home groups, but opening our mouths when we're talking with people, friends, coworkers, neighbors, other people, about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you consider that? Just be humble. Remember, it's not about you. God works through you. He's calling you to be a voice. Well, you're not John the Baptist, but you're one of his children. And as his children, you're called to be a witness. And he also wants you to be honest. And sometimes we battle with that because we want to be perceived as being tolerant and nice and accepting and all that kind of stuff. But we need to be honest with the truth so that people will hear the gospel. Lord, thank you for John and for his example. Lord, for how you, you continue to teach us through your word. And Lord, there are so many areas in my life that you're just kind of poking at right now and you need to do a work in, and you are doing a work in. Lord, I just ask that, that would be true of others, not because of anything I have, I have done, but simply because your word, Lord, is being made known. Would you allow us to be strengthened by your truth and to be faithful not only to know you and to, apl- and to apply your truth to our lives, but, Lord, also to proclaim it in such a way, Lord, that we glorify you.